Hey, I'm Rachel Billingsley. And I'm Luke Billingsley, and this is GMT Talk, our insider podcast where we talk about all things GMT. Today on GMT Talk, we'll be interviewing Sam London, a new designer and a friend of GMT. Sam's first design with GMT is Firefight Tactical, an innovative, dice-driven tactical World War II wargame at the squad level. Hey, Sam. Thanks ah, for being here. Surprise. Been ambushed. <laughs> uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, Glad to have you on. The, the time you're taking to come and chat with us. Of course. Uh, I mean, it's, this is this takes me, uh, gives me a moment to uh, focus on, you know, my uh, my side hustle that I love so so dearly. So this is great. Perfect. So speaking of which, um, Firefight Tactical just mentioned it. Uh, when I was reading the description to put up the P500 page, I saw dice-driven tactical World War II game, and I was like, "What? You don't see that every day." Um, so, can you tell us a little bit about the dice in the game and how they impact play? Sure. So. Um... This was actually something I uh, brought up in my interview with Zilla was um, I had a little bit of a concern that people looked at when they saw the P500 page, they saw just tons of dice. And they're like, oh, this is all luck. There's like, there's going to be nothing in here. It's like, it's going to be like Warhammer where you're just rolling like 40 dice at a time. And <laughs> I was like, no, that's not what's happening. Um, so the dice, you know, it is still, you'll do combat resolution with dice, but that's just two dice. So that's, but, but, all the rest of the dice are what I call impulse dice. And so they drive the action of the game. So uh, at the beginning of each game turn, you're rolling all of those dice or you know some, some selection of them. And then you're alter uh, alternatively drafting the dice with your opponent and the dice decide the actions that you are able to take with the unit that you assign the die to for that game turn. So they're not so much like deciding whether or not something is successful they're deciding whether or not you have the command flexibility to try to make something happen um and a big part of that is uh this concept of this uh pool of dice that you're drafting from because you're going i mean there's ignoring color for a second which adds a slight wrinkle um you know, your dice, you, you actually, when you roll the dice, you remove all the sixes. We can come back to that later, but all your dice are going to be between one and five. And so it's, there's not that many different possibilities on the dice. And so you're at the beginning, when the common pool's full, you're going to have tons of things that you can do with the dice because you're going to have all these different options. But then as they get drafted, they, you have fewer and fewer options, and then you're going to have to do the best you can with what you got. And so that's, that's what the dice represent. They're not they are not just a insanity level random number generator <laughs> in the mm-hmm. game. It's, it's actually a, a more of a Euro element of the game than a buckets of dice element. Yeah, I like that. The dice drafting thing sounds mm-hmm. really cool. Yeah. So we know that you've designed uh, quite a few scenarios for the game. Can you tell us about a couple of your favorites and maybe why you like them? Sure. Um, so there's, there's quite a few and there's, there's some that are like, no one has seen, but me yet (laughs) just because, uh, they're not, they're not quite ready for prime time, but of the ones that, uh, people have seen and played, um, my favorite is probably the Cherbourg scenario because right now the Cherbourg scenario is, um, kind of the 
everything like here's a, a bunch of toys to play with at the same time. Um, I like it because it's a it's a real combined arms scenario. Um, and simultaneously, the way that it plays out is that the Americans are entering Cherbourg. They're trying to secure the city. Um, the Germans are um, all throughout the city. And it's the first scenario in the game where literally the entire uh, battle grid, what I call the map, um, is all fog of war. It's all face down at the start of the scenario. And so the Germans have knowledge of the entire city, um, whereas the Americans do not. And so the American objective in that scenario is to secure three bunkers in the city, but they don't know precisely where they are. The Germans do. And so you could make these mega stacks on these three parts of town where it'd be like, gee, I wonder where the bunkers are. Um, or you could do what you should do and is commonly done, which is kind of have them maybe a little bit of misdirection here and there, but, you know, make sure that they're defended. And it's, it is, a, it does a surprisingly good job at modeling the like kind of claustrophobia of urban warfare with like the close quarters there. And then you add to it the events that can happen in scenarios where it's like parts of the city are still under naval bombardment and, and stuff like that. It, it, it can be pretty, pretty nuts. But um, yeah, I would say that one's uh, currently my favorite. There's, there's one I'm writing that might end up being my favorite even more than Cherbourg, but that's the, uh, that's the St. Lowe scenario, but that's not, no one's played that yet besides me. So spoilers. Spoilers. <laughs> um, so speaking of the fog of war, how exactly do you go about clearing the fog of war? Um, so fog of war, I have two ways that fog of war is represented in the game. One is your fairly boilerplate concealment counters. Um, the one thing I will mention about them, which I, I think is really cool is that, uh, we haven't gotten around to this yet. And I know we have some assets we're going to look through that are going to show how the counters look in the dice menu on them. But, um, the units have on them, the little menu that tells you, you can do these things if you assign the appropriate die to them. Um, but what's really cool is that concealment counters also have dice menus. And so if you're assigning a die to the concealment counter, you can perform specific actions with the unit while and leave it concealed. Um, and so that can, that includes if it's a decoy, <laughs> you know, so you can have these things where it's like, oh yeah, the squad's moving over here now. Oh no, they've dug into position. Like, you know, and it's like playing with this, like, oh, what's going on over there? And then it's like, you know, it's like, oh, it's a decoy. Nothing's like, it was paranoia. <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of uh, element of fog of war, I, I think is a lot of fun. Um, on the terrain side is kind of the main implementation of fog of war. Um, so all the terrain in Firefight Tactical is represented by cards. And a lot of them uh, will begin the scenario face down, as I mentioned for the Cherbourg scenario. And so those are not known positions until a known unit is there and kind of locks it down. And that's because terrain and firefight tactical represents what is tactically relevant at that location, as opposed to it being the only thing that's at that location. So it's kind of like, you can think of it if you have a concealed unit on a face down card it's just a whole realm of possibility who knows what's actually there and then as soon as the unit is revealed um then it becomes you flip the card and it's like okay so this unit is in use utilizing this feature terrain feature at the moment 
or trapped in <laughs> the terrain feature at the moment. Um, and so that bit of um, uh, uncertainty is a big part of the game. There's ways that that gets played with that are a lot of fun. So, um, for example, recon squads in the game have the scout ability or a subset of the leaders have the survey ability. And both of them work somewhat similarly where you'll be able to target a face down fog of war card and you'll be able to privately view it. And then the cards you don't use that are specific to the scenario, you construct a scenario deck for the scenario, but they just weren't dealt in the opening play. Um, you would draw the card that you're targeting and then draw the top card of the deck and you choose between them, which is the one that's there. And so in the case of Scout, you're almost you're pretty much always going to pick the card that's like, oh, this is the better tactical position. But with Survey for the leader, you do that just where they can see. And so there you might do things like, uh, you know, draw the card, look, and then see, oh, here's horrible terrain that I just drew, I'm going to put it back there and leave it face down for them to run into, um, you know, and so there's that kind of cooking your fog of war there, which is a, another area that it really sings, I think, in the design. That's really cool. So looking at a few of the game photos to the naked eye, the counters stand out a lot because they're a lot larger than normal counters. So yep. can you tell us a little bit about that and why they are so large um well it's because of the action menu i mean the, the rest of that would very easily fit on a smaller counter um so the action menu over here is what drives the game it's this is where that's what tells you when you assign an impulse die to the unit the action you can perform with the unit so with this german assault squad um and actually i'll just i don't think i've actually described this uh, before to many people, but this is specifically set up where the top entry being that fire action, the middle entry being the take cover action, the bottom entry being the move action. Those are what I call standard actions. And so virtually every infantry unit in the game has those actions. Um, the other two are the special actions, which are specific to this squad type. So the only the assault squad has the ability to do assault fire and pop smoke. Um, so anyway, when you're looking at this menu, the way to read this is if the die symbol is not colored, so for example, the one and the two on the fire option, you can assign any one or two to that, to this unit to perform a fire action. In the case of the assault action, which obviously has other symbols there, what this means is you can assign any two, a red or blue three, or any yellow die will let you perform the assault action. And so you kind of have this uh, puzzle of trying to optimize your dice placement to try to do the most you can um, with what you have. The thing is that a big part of this game is as you've played, you know, it's not going to be your first couple of games, but after, excuse me, after you've played it a little bit, you'll hit the point where you're like, I'm really afraid of assault fire right now because they if they manage to you know be efficient with their movement get some pins on my guys and then run across no man's land i'm in big trouble so you'll start to pull the yellow dice first not even necessarily caring what they are just to limit the amount of assaults that you know your opponent's assault squads would be able to attempt um and so that's kind of how this dice menu works. It's all on the counters. Um, 
very much because the units there's not you're going to have a fair number of different units over the course of especially the larger scenarios and so having it where if we were to it had been suggested before in development having it where it's you you have a counter or a more traditional size counter and then you would have cards that would have this action menu on it when you're actually in play and you're you're looking out and you're saying okay these guys are here these guys are over here saying like okay these guys are here what can they do with these dice that you have to consult your opponent's card it was just too much looking around at different places for information here it's really clear this is what's you know available for the unit um when you after a unit's spent you literally leave the die you activated it with on top of it and so at a glance you can really easily see who's available what they need to do what and you know what dice are still available for drafting nice and they're all different, I'm assuming. Like this yep. one, it has some other right. ones. Yeah. So okay. this one is a uh, obviously it's a tank. Um, so the armor counters work uh, a little bit differently. Actually, should have given you a different side of this to talk about. <laughs> so the, um, so if, if you go back to the last one real quick. Okay. Um, so this is obviously an infantry counter. When these become pinned, you just flip them over, and then they have a different dice menu on the back that is limited options due to the fact that they're pinned. Oh, that's right. I think I have that. Like that? Is that right? No, no, that's a that's a support weapon. Okay. Uh, but if you go back oh. to that tank. Oh, back to the tank. Okay. Yeah. The tank is different because the flip side of armor can't become pinned. It's they don't doesn't have morale issues. Yeah. So um the flip side of the armor represents that the tank is in motion. So this is a stationary Sherman. But then you would, once it's in motion, you would flip it and it would actually have um, possibly different action requirements to perform its, its actions and different stats um, representing the fact that it's in motion already. And so that's a um, another fun little thing that I, I, I snuck onto the counters here. Um, the, uh, let's see. Oh yeah, this is a, this is a this is a slightly out of date one. There's now going to be um, <laughs> a fire that's not on here right now. But you can see they have an entirely different set of options. Um, tanks are very much uh, that's actually that little brick wall symbol there. A, a big part of um, how armor is represented in Firefight Tactical is as a mobile terrain effect modifier, and so you're supposed to use them for your infantry to kind of advance behind them under degree of safety and so that's you end up in these scenarios like for example the uh the bloody gulch scenario uh, after carantan where it's 100 the way you're supposed to do it is advance your tanks out you have your have them screen your infantry so they can kind of get across no man's land and then but then you got to worry because there's going to be hidden uh bazookas and and panzer shreks and stuff like that uh, to contend with um yeah, that's that's about all I got to say about that counter. I guess the other thing to mention is they don't have morale. That star in the upper right on this yeah. M nineteen nineteen is morale, armor. Right. Like I said, can't pin, so instead they have armor vulnerability. But okay, okay. And then this, you said, is what support? Yeah, this is a support weapon. So uh, this is an M nineteen nineteen. These are extremely uh, deadly <laughs> in the right position, and mm -hmm. so. Um, a major this actually came up um who was i playing with the other day 
Oh no! It was yeah. It was it was uh, the the video that I was I was playing against the bot. Um, <laughs> but, um, All right. <laughs> but the um, I actually couldn't remember that honestly. I was thinking I was playing with Peter Evans, but I, <laughs> it turns out the game I think I was playing against the bot. But um, a big thing with the support weapons that uh, I think is really cool is that it's uh, you don't want them to be on their own because they're pretty flimsy. Like it's you know it's literally in this case it's two guys. Um, and so the uh, if they get eliminated and they're uh, and they're co-located with other friendly units, um, squads in particular, you can voluntarily reduce the squad to maintain the support weapon, representing that you have like individuals leaving the squad to pick up the weapon and, and keep fighting with it. Um, and so you can have some fairly cinematic moments, like happened with the bot when I was recording my uh, solo video. Um, but yeah, otherwise they function fairly similarly to, um, uh, standard infantry. Cool. Uh, well, speaking of the bot, what can you tell us about the bot, the solo bot? Um, so I just put out my video on my YouTube channel about, uh, mm -hmm. about the bot, but I'm more than happy to cover it uh, here. Um, uh, I sent you a card if you want to bring that yes. up. Yep. So, um, the bot and firefight tactical is represented by a, uh, relatively small deck of cards like the biggest the bot deck can get is 14 cards um and the cards look like this and so they come in a uh a couple of varieties in the core game um but the uh that first let's just look at the bottom that very bottom code there so that is the id for this card meaning this card came from the attacker bot deck this is an infantry control card, and this is the fourth card in the cautious disposition subdeck. So um, both the attacker and the defender deck have a reckless and a cautious disposition subdeck. And so the idea is that if the uh, if a player wants to, nothing wrong with it. You can play against the entire reckless subdeck or the entire cautious subdeck, and you'll just be dealing with a maximally reckless or cautious version of the bot. But what the intention is is to shuffle them together and so you would only ever have one version of card four either the cautious or the reckless version and so on and so what you would do and i did this in my in my solo demo is you would just take randomly one of from each pairing going through and then you'll end up with a bot that's reckless in some circumstances cautious in other circumstances and you don't know which until it acts um, and the order in which these come up is also of course unpredictable my huge pet peeve of mine when I'm playing solo games is I hate looking at a game state and saying, I've seen this game state before, or the bot's going to do this. Never going to happen in Firefight Tactical because the or order in which the cards are drawn, the nature of the game state, all of that, um, and which of the sub decks it came from, you'll have no idea. <laughs> It'll always be a novel experience. So um, the way that the card is actually resolved is each of these cards is divided into nodes and triggers. So the boxes are the nodes, and then the individual lines are the triggers. And then in the upper right, so suppress within that fire node is what I call an override. And so the way that it resolves is when it's the bot's turn, you flip the top card and you'll resolve it from top to bottom. So first for the fire node, you're looking at the triggers to see if there's a match in the game state. And so you're looking for the trigger to be procced, and then you are looking for approximate actor, which would be a unit that has the capacity to modify the trigger. 
that's a lot of jargon, but it's really not that complicated. So if you look, for example, at the top here, all it means enemy adjacent is do you have any available units with an enemy unit adjacent? If so, fire on them. That's simple. Um, next one would be, okay, that's not the thing. Okay, do you have any available units that can have line of sight to an enemy unit with a terrain effect modifier less than or equal to plus zero? Yes, fire on them. So that's it's just that quick. You just go on down. And then um, in the event that you get through the entire node and none of those triggered, you go on to the next one. So then we go to the dig in node. Nothing there, you go on to the move node. And if you, in the off chance, because boy, can I talk about this? I'm going to do this for an inside BMT article, but I'm, I'm not going to get into the logic of this right now. But in the unlikely event, you make it to the very bottom of the card and nothing has resolved, the bot will pass. Mm -hmm. uh, much like a human player would. Um, now, the thing is that if a trigger occurs, the bot will draft the appropriate die to perform the action that the bot is performing if it can. Hmm. But if no such die is available, it will still do the action. Nothing's going to stop it from doing the action. But it'll actually pull the die that is the worst for you which is um, described by the uh, nature of the scenario. Like, for example, the, um, uh, oh, that was something we could have called out on the counters, but that's fine. But um, like, for example, the American infantry units, um, their aggression dice are always higher value dice. And so the thing is, if the American is defending, the bot is going to assume that the American player that's defending is always going to care the most about their higher value dice because their lower value dice are mobility. So if they're in a defensive position, they care much less about mobility and much more about aggression. So if the bot doesn't have a matching die to perform the action it wants, it will just pull the aggression dice to limit the ability to fire back from the American human player. Um, so that's the way the dice draft works. The only other thing to really cover on here besides the bottom left is the override that I mentioned. So the way an override works is in the case, let's go to that fire node, um, that suppression override means that before you evaluate the checks for the triggers, you are going to try to suppress first. So you would look for your units that have the capacity to suppress and you'll resolve the entire node just for those units. And if any of that works for them, great. You perform the action, card's done. But if you get through for the override and none of no units acted as a result of the override, then you go back to the top of that node and you re-resolve it now for everybody that doesn't have the capacity to suppress. Hmm. Um, so that's how you'll get your kind of more esoteric actions in there, your suppressions, popping smoke, um, uh, scouting, like all, all that kind of stuff. Um, there was one other thing I was going to mention here, but I guess I'll just go to the bottom left. So the bottom left uh, bit there is what controls opportunity fire. So every time a unit moves, or your, your unit as the human player, moves within range of an enemy unit, you flip the top card of the deck and you consult that bottom left part there. And so if you are within that number range, um, there it might fire and then if it's the open eyeball it has to be an open line of sight and if it's the eyeball with a slash through it which i haven't covered yet but that indicates hindered line of sight it'll just fire so long as you're in range okay. um and so again those are as you might have gathered 
all of this stuff is tied into the cautious and reckless disposition. So the reckless bot is way more likely. It's a dog chasing a car. It's way more likely to fire at any possible opportunity it sees while you're in motion. Whereas the cautious bot is going to be much more apt to wait for the better shot. Um, and so again, shuffling those together, you'll get a, a mixture there between the two behaviors. Um, oh, I remember the thing I was going to cover. So you're going to have um, situations, obviously. So say you have... Um, uh, what's a, what's a good example? Uh, let's look at that first trigger from the move node. So you have a unit that's going, so it's the way that it works for move nodes is you're looking for a zone that's described by the trigger that an available actor could move into. So for that first trigger for the move node, it's looking for a zone that has a terrain effect modifier greater than or equal to plus two. Now, if you end up having where there's multiple zones that are described that way, then there's specific tiebreakers for that node type. So for moves, it's always going to break ties in favor of the zone that is closest to a known objective. Mm. And so then it would then it'd say, okay, so now we're going with this zone because it's closest to a known objective, but I have multiple actors that can move into that zone. And in that case, the tie is broken by the actor that is furthest from the zone they're moving into. And so the way that this is kind of works, so this is set up is, once you, there's a player aid that, by the way, that describes all these tiebreakers. But once you understand these tiebreakers, it is so fast. I, I, I mean, it's it is. I can get through a bot turn realistically in probably a third the time uh, of a human opponent's turn. Wow. So it's like you're once you just get that and you're you know how to read those cards, it flies by. Um, it's you can do really quick games against the bot. That's really cool. I love the cautious versus uh, reckless disposition. That's so cool. I know. I'm really excited about it. And uh, Tease, provided the game does well enough and uh, there's interest in an expansion, there are other dimensions for the disposition. Ooh. So New axes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I like that. Um, so you mentioned Fog of War. I'm sure that creates tension and excitement. Um, but I wanted to ask what aspects of the design create player tension and excitement as you play? So I have two different answers to that because I view those as two different things. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so um, the tension bit is uh, for me totally comes from the draft. Um, the draft, like having those moments where you know what you need to do in order to give yourself the best chance to win but you're only drafting one die at a time. And so you're gonna have um, circumstances where I need this to happen first and I'm okay so long as they leave me a blue die or any four, something like that, right? And then you just end up like, they took it. And you're, <laughs> you're just like, you're, 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 there's, there's a, it's not even a degree of bluffing because it's public information for the most part, unless the unit's concealed. Um, but you know, you're 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 gonna have these moments where it's like, I hope there's so many of those moments which you have in a lot of games where it's like, I hope they don't see this, you know. Mm -hmm. But the, the problem, I say this problem is in like it's not a problem with the game, it's a problem <laughs> with like that outlook is there's so many times where your opponent is going to take the die that's exactly what you need and now you're just 
intensely <laughs> vulnerable and then you get so upset about it and they didn't see it at all but that's also kind of on you because you should have looked mm -hmm. at what they were probably going to draw um but that's a huge source of tension for the excitement um a big part of the game that i i particularly enjoy is every time you resolve a test in the game so anytime you roll a test you well, two dice, you add them together, and you're trying to roll equal to or less than a target number. Uh, that's some statistic for a unit. Um, the thing is, every time you roll doubles on those dice, something special happens. And so if you succeed and roll doubles, something excellent happens. And if you fail and roll doubles, something terrible happens. And so there are so many groan-inducing or stand-up moments that will come from an unexpected pair of doubles like the i would say the the best of both is when you're like somebody rolls like a an afterthought assault fire like that's what i the way i kind of wear is like oh i'm assaulting because assault squads are are generally better able to move than the other squad types because they can both traditionally move and they can assault and so the um it's like okay i'm just assaulting it's like since i'm assaulting i'll just take a random shot at your big stack of, of people in the house. Like, yeah, sure. You know, it's, I, I'm going to miss, but whatever. And they barely make it. It's like, Oh, cool. Wow. I got it. But they, you know, it's, they don't get any bonuses or anything. It's just kind of like, Oh, cool. You know, just disposable shot. And then the, the, like the first morale check for the, the guys in the house, they roll box cars and it's a, it kills their, you know, their sergeant that's in that. And it's just like, like, <laughs> Like what are the odds of that? And it's just, you know, those are, those are such great moments. And then on the flip side, um, the thing that is the uh, common piece of feedback I get, the most exciting thing that happens in the game is anytime you succeed on doubles for a rally check or a morale check, you get something called a valor, which is when a unit goes like super heroic and, you know, steals the show. And what's that represented, how it's represented in the game is that the unit that Valors can immediately disrupt the flow of play and act performing any action they want on their action menu without assigning a die to them, even if they already have a die on them. And so you can end up with these tremendously cinematic moments that'll happen where it's like a, what seemed like a sure thing to eliminate, you know, a, uh, actually this is, this is one of my personal favorite things that happens and it can, I've seen it happen several times is um, you'll have a recon squad, um, which is recon squad is really good at doing ambushing and kind of stuff like that. And so um, they're like charging across open field in a desperation move to try to get to, you know, some, you know, maybe like say like a stone wall or something to try to take it. And um, they're under fire and it's like, you know, the, the, Opponent takes opportunity fire and going like, oh yeah, they have, they have no shot. And so they take the shot, they make it by like a wide margin. So there's no chance, this recon squad has no chance of actually making it. And then they roll snake eyes on the morale check. They valor and they make <laughs> it that extra, they interrupt flow and they make it the extra move. And now they're pinned and in melee. It's like those cinematic moments are like the bread and butter of the game. So... That's I would cool. say that's a, a huge source of the excitement. I love when you can okay. build a narrative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we were talking about. Um, I mentioned that reminded me of Monopoly because you roll doubles in Monopoly, you get to go. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, 
and we were talking about how I stole it from Monopoly. <laughs> you got me. doubles actually happens more often than you would think. So yeah, it's actually, a, a, I would say, a bigger mechanic of the game than you would think as well. Oh, it, it absolutely is. If you, it is irregular that you'll go through a game that doesn't have quite a number of those. And then it's another thing that's a um, more subtle element of the game that not everybody picks up on is that when you end up with modifiers for you know a fire action or a morale check or whatever and it's like oh it's plus one or something it's like okay i don't know how much of an impact that's going to actually have on my odds here it's like well that might shift it from like you know uh like nine to ten or something that's like well that nine to ten statistically is an improvement but it's not huge but that adds two fives as a success or, you know, as a, as a paired success. And so that shifting the, the goalpost can change, you know, your likelihood of getting the better doubles results or not. Yeah. And so that's, that's a, a another part of it. That's it. I love doubles in the game. They're, that's just a lot of fun. Yeah. That's so fun. So uh, if all goes well with Firefight Tactical, what other games or modules do you envision being in the universe of Firefight Tactical? In the universe? That's a... Yeah, the, the extended a universe. Extended <laughs> universe, the FFPU. Um, it would be... Uh, so the first thing I'm imagining is we would have a um, kind of a quality of life expansion that in my mind I'm calling Breakthrough. But that would be the um, expansion of the bot that I teased. Um, that would be the random scenario generator that I couldn't fit into the core game. Um, there will be the custom scenario rules in the core game. But um, the random scenario generator I, I designed to be, it's already done. It's designed to be ludicrously flexible. I mean, it, it really can create an insane amount of scenarios. And I've designed the system to be very plug and play friendly. So the idea is any future modules that would add different kinds of terrain or any of these sorts of things would come with modified versions of like the terrain um, tables for the random scenario generator. So you can just throw everything together. Um, but the, um, so there's that. And then the uh, mega scenarios and multiplayer rules. Um, would also go into that quality of life expansion. I'm really excited about those because people kept asking about it. And then I was, you know, just one of those moments where I'm driving and I'm like, how would multiplayer work? And it was so simple. Like, it's such a simple change, but it's it's so cool <laughs> what it does to gameplay. Um, but anyway, that would be the, the quality of life. And then after that would be um, Eastern Front. Um, I have... Uh, the Soviets entirely designed for the most part. Um, and then uh, probably swing to the Mediterranean from there. But there would be um, some other things I would like to do, uh, like kind of, um, how, would I, how do I put this? The way I'm kind of imagining is you have like, uh, like force expansions that would give you your orders of battle and, you know, um, potentially new terrain decks. And then um, kind of the like, specifics like i don't know how to word this but like an example would be to do a like amphibious assault micro expansion that then you would be able to add back in and be like okay now we can actually do our beach landings like you know that in like various theaters um but the um yeah that's there's 
I've, I've, I've plenty of plans for it. And then I've also had multiple people ask about Vietnam. That's such mm -hmm. a distant thing for me, but I'm, I'm very interested in doing something like that. If there, if the interest was there, so. It's a bright future for firefight tactical. Again, like I, I keep saying this when I'm uh, being interviewed, but like, I, I design pretty much every moment I'm thinking that I'm not taking care of my kids. <laughs> and so it's the kind of thing where um if people like uh you know the stupid things that i write down i'll keep writing them down <laughs> kind of the way it'll go yeah. so i rarely meet a game designer who is working on only one game mm -hmm. at a time <laughs> uh so I've heard that there's another game you're working on set in the American Revolution. You've uh, heard that, have you? <laughs> uh, Somewhere. <laughs> um, what could you tell us about that? Um, so I'm that game is called Absolved from All Allegiance. Um, that is what I'm hoping will be the first game in a system I'm calling the Will to Fight system. Um, it is a hopefully accessible, I, I, I want it to be accessible, strategic level, heavily asymmetric war game um, that utilizes trick-taking as its core engine. And so uh, the idea with that game is that you and your opponent, so this is AMREV, so you're, you're British and your colonials, um, have their own independent deck of cards and they're going to be playing into tricks uh using four suits which uh, correspond to the action types so the action types are mobilize recruit battle and special with the special being where a lot of the asymmetry comes in um and so you're going to be playing these tricks whoever wins the trick gets to actually perform the action each card in the game is unique and so um you'll also have your a lot of your historicity and your kind of cool stuff happen as a result of the card when it resolves but um the idea that is kind of the the crux of how the game works is that you're it's a trick taker you're trying to follow suit and you're trying to play a higher value card than your opponent in order to win the trick um but the way that it works in absolve from all allegiance is that the higher value cards where you're very likely to win the trick the rules text your your kind of historical special event that'll happen, which will be modeled after special, you know, famous, uh, you know, people from the period or a major event or a, a battle. Um, the ones at the higher value cards are going to be weaker or much more situational, whereas the ones on your lower value cards are going to be much harder to actually win the trick with, but are game changers. Um, and so you are end up in a, uh, I don't know how you would put it. It's like a game of chicken kind of with your opponent where you're like, kind of like going like, okay, I think that they're out of this suit now so I can play this, but then they'll surprise you or they'll have like a, a good trump for it. Or, you know, there's, there's um, all these things that'll kind of happen there, but it's like when somebody, so the, the right now I'm actually going to shift this, but the, the, the lowest value card say is a one. It's like George Washington is a one. King George is a one. 
And it's like, because if you get, so as a, an idea of the asymmetry and how powerful these cards can be, one of the things the British player has to work with in the game is uh, commitment. So they have to worry about, because they're also fighting in Europe against France and Spain. And so they can't just go, here's all of my pieces into um, the new world. They actually can, but they can only do that if they're winning by a mile, which is rare like they're you know they i'm, I'm not going to get into the specifics of how the system works they they generally need to maintain some level of presence in europe or they lose will to fight the name of the system i'm coming back to that um but the uh that's called their commitment check if you get king george into play you don't have to resolve a commitment check for the rest of the campaign and so that's so impactful because the like britain is having to fight with its hands tied and so removing the tie can you know com completely change how the game's going to play out yeah and so um these kind of the threat of these different cards is where a lot of uh the play comes in anyway a, a lot of um the actions in the game are going to end up tied to what i mentioned before the will to fight track which is uh what the game's named after and so the idea is that um in the sake of, and this is also where it's asymmetrical, the colonies, when they are taking losses, um, they're only really losing will to fight when they lose whole colonies or lose stand-up battles. It's their will to fight is a little bit harder, but when it goes down, it goes down massively. It'll also go down if you force the colonies to move the Continental Congress. Um, the British, on the other hand, their will to fight, the British never had <laughs> the hearts and minds of the people involved in the conflict. So the British will to fight actually represents Parliament's willingness to continue to subsidize the war. And so they lose will to fight from things like British regulars getting killed. You can lose all the Hessians you want, um, but British regulars, you got to be really careful with. Unfortunately, they're also your best piece. So you kind of want to put them in danger. The Hessians, on the other hand, you don't care about losing them, but if they keep living, you have to keep paying them. And so that paying the Hessians really upsets Parliament. And so th this kind of, you're both dwindling your will to fight as the game goes on. And eventually the counters that track this will cross. And when they converge, that's what causes the side that's further down the track to sue for peace and will affect the uh, victory conditions ultimately of the game. So um, that's a, that's, absolve from all allegiance in a nutshell i also have very big hopes and aspirations for that system so that sounds great mm -hmm. i would love a, a trip taking board game it's a it's so it's a lot of fun that i've not i have not gotten negative feedback on that game yet <laughs> like everyone who's played it really had a blast with it that's exciting cool thanks for sharing that yeah, I'm excited to see the future of that one and all the other things you're working on. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so we're coming to the end of our interview, but before we let you go, we just have a couple more things to ask you. So the first, do you have a favorite game by another GMT designer? Yeah, so that's actually... Yeah, that's the side of Tank Duel right there. I can see on the camera. Um, I love Tank Duel. I love... Um, I mean, I love a lot of GMT games. I have, what it? I think I have like three versions of Twilight Struggle. Um, oh, it's just out of camera. 
So funny story. I'm going to go through really briefly. Um, my wife and I were driving um, uh, uh, to Northern California when the anniversary edition for Twilight Struggle went live. Uh, <laughs> and I literally was like, there it is. And I pulled over to the side of the road, like on a mountainside with like graphic. And it, and it was just like, like, like refreshing over and over again until I could buy it. Because I was like, these are going to go so fast. My wife was very upset with me. But um, yeah, I love Twilight Struggle. I have uh, Space Corp is uh, back there. I love that as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I honestly, at this point, I think I own probably something like, I won't exaggerate, maybe like 60% of the GMT catalogs. Impressive. I love it. Love it. <laughs> um, okay, and then also, uh, who are one or two people in the gaming hobby who've had a positive influence on your growth and development as a game designer. Sure. Um, so this one I, I think is going to sound a little cheese, but it's the real answer. Um, probably the two that I would uh, go with would be Chad Jensen and I'm going to butcher his name and I feel terrible about it, but um, Vlada Shvadl who did like uh, code names and uh, dungeon pets and mage Knight and all that stuff. And actually for it's, essentially the same reason which was um when i got uh into the hobby um in a in a real way um which was about like 2007 um i was like just consuming every game i, I could find and um i was really struck with chad's work specifically um when i discovered uh dominant species and so I had already been playing um, Combat Commander. And it was kind of like a, it was such a shock to me that it was like, these games are so different and they're both so good. And uh, that was the same sense I got from Vlada. Because I was just so impressed by designers that like could make games that you just couldn't even believe they were made by the same person and and they're good like it's you know it's anybody can write something down there's um there are definitely some games out there i will not name where i'm like okay this only got published because it was made by so and so and it's like it's not as good as their other work but it's like people that can put out quality that reliably um over such a diverse design space i'm floored like I, it's so impressive to me and so that was actually, um, that was a big part. That was probably, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say like, I realized like, oh, I'm inspired, you know, but it was, that was around the time that I did start to really get serious about um, game design. And I mean, I didn't, I did not try to sell any of my games for, you know, well over a decade. Um, the first thing I ever tried to sell was Firefly Tactical. And so, yay, that worked out. But um, it was uh, it was just a, a lot of time kind of like just working for, you know, uh, pun, love of the game. Um, and it was, uh, but it was really trying to emulate, um, you know, people that seem to be able to look at, um, I guess you would say like holes in the hobby and be like, oh, I can put something there. It's going to be really fun. I'm going to type this and this and this. People are going to love it, and, and they do it well. 
and and so yeah those would be two major heroes for me awesome well that's it for gmt talk today uh thanks sam for taking the time to talk with us and for being a guest yeah of course thanks for having me great to see you <laughs> great talk so uh we will see everyone next time on gmt talk